0: Section 8 of The Greater Inclination. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clatt. The Greater Inclination by Edith Wharton. The Portrait It was at Mrs. Mellish's one Sunday afternoon last spring. We were talking over George Lillo's portraits, a collection of them was being shown at Durand Ruel's, and a pretty woman had emphatically declared, "'Nothing on earth would induce me to sit to him!' There was a chorus of interrogations. "'Oh, because—he makes people look so horrid—the way one looks on board ship or early in the morning, or when one's hair is out of curl and one knows it. I'd so much rather be done by Mr. Cumberton.' little cumberton the fashionable purveyor of rose-water pastels stroked his moustache to hide a conscious smile lillo is a genius that we all must admit he said indulgently as though condoning a friend's weakness but he has an unfortunate temperament he has been denied the gift so precious to an artist of perceiving the ideal he sees only the defects of his sitters One might almost fancy that he takes a morbid pleasure in exaggerating their weak points, in painting them on their worst days. But I honestly believe he can't help himself. His peculiar limitations prevent his seeing anything but the most prosaic side of human nature. A primrose by the river's brim, a yellow primrose is to him, and it is nothing more. Cumberton looked round to surprise an order in the eye of the lady whose sentiments he had so deftly interpreted, but poetry always made her uncomfortable, and her nomadic attention had strayed to other topics. His glance was tripped up by Mrs. Mellish. "'Limitations! But, my dear man, it's because he hasn't any limitations, because he doesn't wear the portrait painter's conventional blinders, that we're all so afraid of being painted by him. It's not because he sees only one aspect of his sitters. It's because he selects the real, the typical one, as instinctively as a detective collars a pickpocket in a crowd. If there's nothing to paint, no real person, he paints nothing. Look at the sumptuous emptiness of his portrait of Mrs. Guy Audrey. "'Why,' the pretty woman perplexedly interjected, "'that's the only nice picture he ever did.' if there's one positive trait in a negative whole, he brings it out in spite of himself. If it isn't a nice trait, so much the worse for the sitter. It isn't Lillo's fault. He's no more to blame than a mirror. Your other painters do the surface. He does the depths. They paint the ripples on the pond. He drags the bottom. He makes flesh seem as fortuitous as clothes. When I look at his portraits of fine ladies in pearls and velvet, I seem to see a little naked, cowering wisp of a soul sitting beside the big splendid body, like a poor relation in the darkest corner of an opera-box. But look at his pictures of really great people—how great they are! There's plenty of ideal there. Take his Professor Clyde—how clearly the man's history is written in those broad, steady strokes of the brush—the hard work, the endless patience, the fearless imagination of the great savant or the picture of Mr. Domfrey, the man who has felt beauty without having the power to create it. The very brushwork expresses the difference between the two. The crowding of nervous, tentative lines, the subtler gradations of color, somehow convey a suggestion of dilettantism. You feel what a delicate instrument the man is—how every sense has been tuned to the finest responsiveness." Mrs. Mellish paused, blushing a little at the echo of her own eloquence. My advice is, don't let George Lillo paint you if you don't want to be found out, or to find yourself out. That's why I've never let him do me. I'm waiting for the day of judgment." She ended with a laugh. Every one but the pretty woman, whose eyes betrayed a quivering impatience to discuss clothes, had listened attentively to Mrs. Mellish. Lillo's presence in New York, he had come over from paris for the first time in twelve years to arrange the exhibition of his pictures gave to the analysis of his methods as personal a flavor as though one had been furtively dissecting his domestic relations the analogy indeed is not unapt for in Lillo's curiously detached existence it is difficult to figure any closer tie than that which unites him to his pictures in this light Mrs. Mellish's flushed harangue seemed not unfitted to the trivialities of the tea-hour, and some one almost at once carried on the argument by saying, "'But according to your theory, that the significance of his work depends on the significance of the sitter, his portrait of Vard ought to be a masterpiece, and it's his biggest failure.' Alonzo Vard's suicide. He killed himself, strangely enough, the day that Lillo's pictures were first shown, had made his portrait the chief feature of the exhibition. It had been painted ten or twelve years earlier, when the terrible boss was at the height of his power, and if ever man presented a type to stimulate such insight as Lillo's, that man was Vard. Yet the portrait was a failure. It was magnificently composed, the technique was dazzling, but the face had been, well, expurgated. It was Vard as Cumberton might have painted him a common man trying to look at ease in a good coat. The picture had never before been exhibited, and there was a general outcry of disappointment. It wasn't only the critics and the artists who grumbled. Even the big public, which had gaped and shuddered at Vard, revelling in his genial villainy, and enjoying in his death that succumbing to divine wrath which, as a spectacle, is next best to its successful defiance, even the public felt itself defrauded what had the painter done with their hero? Where was the big, sneering, domineering face that figured so convincingly in political cartoons and patent-medicine advertisements, on cigar-boxes and electioneering posters? They had admired the man for looking his part so boldly, for showing the undisguised blaggard in every line of his coarse body and cruel face. The pseudo-gentleman of Lillo's picture was a poor thing compared to the real Vard. It had been vaguely expected that the great boss's portrait would have the zest of an incriminating document, the scandalous attraction of secret memoirs, and instead it was as insipid as an obituary. It was as though the artist had been in league with his sitter, had pledged himself to oppose to the lust for post-mortem revelations an impassable blank wall of negation. The public was resentful, the critics were aggrieved. Even Mrs. Mellish had to lay down her arms. "'Yes, the portrait of Vard is a failure,' she admitted, "'and I've never known why. "'If he'd been an obscure, elusive type of villain "'one could understand Lillo's missing the mark for once. "'But with that face from the pit—' She turned at the announcement of a name which our discussion had drowned, and found herself shaking hands with Lillo. The pretty woman started and put her hand to her curls— Cumberton dropped a condescending eyelid—he never classed himself by recognizing degrees in the profession—and Mrs. Mellish, cheerfully aware that she had been overheard, said, as she made room for Lillo, "'I wish you'd explain it.' Lillo smoothed his beard and waited for a cup of tea. Then— "'Would there be any failures?' he said, if one could explain them." "'Ah, in some cases I can imagine it's impossible to seize the type, or to say why one has missed it. Some people are like daguerreotypes. In certain lights one can't see them at all. But surely Vard was obvious enough. What I want to know is, what became of him? What did you do with him? How did you manage to shuffle him out of sight?' "'It was much easier than you think. I simply missed an opportunity.' "'That a sign-painter would have seen.' very likely. In fighting shy of the obvious one may miss the significant. And when I got back from Paris, the pretty woman was heard to wail, I found all the women here were wearing the very models I'd brought home with me. Mrs. Mellish, as became a vigilant hostess, got up and shuffled her guests, and the question of Vard's portrait was dropped. I left the house with Lillo, and on the way down Fifth Avenue, after one of his long silences, he suddenly asked— is that what is generally said of my picture of Vard? I don't mean in the newspapers, but by the fellows who know. I said it was. He drew a deep breath. Well, he said, it's good to know that when one tries to fail one can make such a complete success of it. Tries to fail? Well, no, that's not quite it either. I didn't want to make a failure of Vard's picture. But I did so deliberately, with my eyes open all the same. It was what one might call a lucid failure. But why? The why of it is rather complicated. I'll tell you some time." He hesitated. "'Come and dine with me at the club by-and-by, and I'll tell you afterwards. It's a nice morsel for a psychologist." At dinner he said little, but I didn't mind that. I had known him for years, and had always found something soothing and companionable in his long abstentions from speech his silence was never unsocial. It was bland as a natural hush. One felt oneself included in it, not left out. He stroked his beard and gazed absently at me, and when we had finished our coffee and liqueurs we strolled down to his studio. At the studio, which was less draped, less posed, less consciously artistic than those of the smaller men, he handed me a cigar and felt a smoking before the fire When he began to talk it was of indifferent matters, and I had dismissed the hope of hearing more of Vard's portrait, when my eye lit on a photograph of the picture. I walked across the room to look at it, and Lillo presently followed with a light. "'It certainly is a complete disguise,' he muttered over my shoulder. Then he turned away and stooped to a big portfolio propped against the wall. "'Did you ever know Miss Vard?' he asked, with his head in the portfolio and without waiting for my answer he handed me a crayon-sketch of a girl's profile. I had never seen a crayon of Lillo's, and I lost sight of the sitter's personality in the interest aroused by this new aspect of the master's complex genius. The few lines, faint yet how decisive, flowered out of the rough paper with the lightness of opening petals. It was a mere hint of a picture, but vivid as some word that wakens long reverberations in the memory. I felt Lillo at my shoulder again. You knew her, I suppose? I had to stop and think. Why of course I'd known her—a silent, handsome girl, showy yet ineffective, whom I had seen without seeing the winter that society had capitulated to Vard. Still looking at the crayon, I tried to trace some connection between the Miss Vard I recalled and the grave young seraph of Lillo's sketch. Had the Vards bewitched him? By what master-stroke of suggestion had he been beguiled into drawing that terrible father as a barber's block, the commonplace daughter as this memorable creature? "'You don't remember much about her?' "'No, I suppose not. She was a quiet girl, and nobody noticed her much. Even when—' he paused with a smile. "'You were all asking Vard to dine.' "'I winced. Yes, it was true. We had all asked Vard to dine.' It was some comfort to think that fate had made him expiate our weakness. Lillo put the sketch on the mantel-shelf and drew his arm-chair to the fire. "'It's cold to-night. Take another cigar, old man. And some whisky. There ought to be a bottle and some glasses in that cupboard behind you. Help yourself." Two. "'About Vard's portrait,' he began. "'Well, I'll tell you. It's a queer story, and most people wouldn't see anything in it. My enemies might say it was a roundabout way of explaining a failure. But you know better than that. Mrs. Mellish was right. Between me and Vard there could be no question of failure. The man was made for me. I felt that the first time I clapped eyes on him. I could hardly keep from asking him to sit to me on the spot. But somehow one couldn't ask favours of the fellow. I sat still and prayed he'd come to me, though— For I was looking for something big for the next salon. It was twelve years ago, the last time I was out here, and I was ravenous for an opportunity. I had the feeling—do you writer fellows have it, too—that there was something tremendous in me if it could only be got out, and I felt Vard was the Moses to strike the rock. There were vulgar reasons, too, that made me hunger for a victim. I'd been grinding on obscurely for a good many years, without gold or glory, And the first thing of mine that had made a noise was my picture of Pepita, exhibited the year before. There had been a lot of talk about that—orders were beginning to come in—and I wanted to follow it up with a rousing big thing at the next salon. Then the critics had been insinuating that I could only do Spanish things. I suppose I had overdone the castanet business—it's a nursery disease we all go through—and I wanted to show that I had plenty more shot in my locker. "'Don't you get up every morning meaning to prove you're equal to Balzac or Thackeray?' That's the way I felt then. "'Only give me a chance,' I wanted to shout out to them, and I saw at once that Vard was my chance. I had come over from Paris in the autumn to paint Mrs. Clingsborough, and I met Vard and his daughter at one of the first dinners I went to. After that I could think of nothing but that man's head. What a type! I raked up all the details of his scandalous history— and there were enough to fill an encyclopedia. The papers were full of him just then. He was mud from head to foot. It was about the time of the big viaduct steal, and irreproachable citizens were forming ineffectual leagues to put him down, and all the time one kept meeting him at dinners. That was the beauty of it. Once I remember seeing him next to the bishop's wife—I've got a little sketch of that duet somewhere—well, he was simply magnificent, a born ruler. What a splendid condottiere he would have made in gold armor, with a griffin grinning on his cask! You remember those drawings of Leonardo's, where the knight's face and the outline of his helmet combine in one monstrous Saurian profile? He always reminded me of that. But how was I to get at him? One day it occurred to me to try talking to Miss Fard. She was a monosyllabic person who didn't seem to see an inch beyond the last remark one had made. But suddenly I found myself blurting out, I wonder if you know how extraordinarily paintable your father is." And you should have seen the change that came over her. Her eyes lit up, and she looked—well, as I've tried to make her look there. He glanced at the sketch. Yes, she said, wasn't her father splendid, and didn't I think him one of the handsomest men I'd ever seen? That rather staggered me, I confess. I couldn't think her capable of joking on such a subject. Yet it seemed impossible that she should be speaking seriously. But she was. I knew it by the way she looked at Vard, who was sitting opposite, his wolfish profile thrown back, the shaggy locks tossed off his narrow, high, white forehead. The girl worshipped him. She went on to say how glad she was that I saw him as she did. So many artists admired only regular beauty, the stupid Greek type that was made to be done in marble. But she'd always fancied from what she'd seen of my work-she knew everything I'd done, it appeared-that I looked deeper. "'cared more for the way in which faces are modelled by temperament and circumstance. "'And, of course, in that sense,' she concluded, "'my father's face is beautiful.' "'This was even more staggering. "'But one couldn't question her divine sincerity. "'I'm afraid my one thought was to take advantage of it, "'and I let her go on, perceiving that if I wanted to paint Vard, "'all I had to do was to listen. "'She poured out her heart.' It was a glorious thing for a girl," she said, wasn't it, to be associated with such a life as that. She felt it so strongly sometimes that it oppressed her, made her shy and stupid. She was so afraid people would expect her to live up to him. But that was absurd, of course—brilliant men so seldom had clever children. Still, did I know—she would have been happier—much happier if he hadn't been in public life, if he and she could have hidden themselves away somewhere with their books and music, and she could have had it all to herself—his cleverness, his learning, his immense unbounded goodness. For no one knew how good he was—no one but herself. Everybody recognized his cleverness, his brilliant abilities—even his enemies had to admit his extraordinary intellectual gifts—and hated him the worse, of course, for the admission. But no one—no one could guess what he was at home. She had heard of great men who were always giving gala performances in public, but whose wives and daughters saw only the empty theatre, with the footlights out and the scenery stacked in the wings. But with him it was just the other way. Wonderful as he was in public, in society, she sometimes felt he wasn't doing himself justice. He was so much more wonderful at home. It was like carrying a guilty secret about with her— His friends, his admirers, would never forgive her if they found out that he kept all his best things for her. I don't quite know what I felt in listening to her. I was chiefly taken up with leading her on to the point I had in view. But even through my personal preoccupation I remember being struck by the fact that, though she talked foolishly, she didn't talk like a fool. She was not stupid. She was not obtuse one felt that her impassive surface was alive with delicate points of perception. And this fact, coupled with her crystalline frankness, flung me back on a started revision of my impressions of her father. He came out of the test more monstrous than ever, as an ugly image reflected in clear water is made uglier by the purity of the medium. Even then I felt a pang at the use to which fate had put the mountain pool of Miss Vard's and an uneasy sense that my own reflection there was not one to linger over. It was odd that I should have scrupled to deceive, on one small point, a girl already so hugely cheated. Perhaps it was the completeness of her delusion that gave it the sanctity of a religious belief. At any rate a distinct sense of discomfort tempered at the satisfaction with which, a day or two later, I heard from her that her father had consented to give me a few sittings. I'm afraid my scruples vanished when I got him before my easel. He was immense, and he was unexplored. From my point of view he'd never been done before. I was his Cortez. As he talked the wonder grew. His daughter came with him, and I began to think she was right in saying that he kept his best for her. It wasn't that she drew him out or guided the conversation, but one had a sense of delicate vigilance hardly more perceptible than one of those atmospheric influences that give the pulses a happier turn. She was a vivifying climate. I had meant to turn the talk to public affairs, but it slipped toward books and art, and I was faintly aware of its being kept there without undue pressure. Before long I saw the value of the diversion. It was easy enough to get at the political vard. The other aspect was rarer and more instructive. His daughter had described him as a scholar. He wasn't that, of course, in any intrinsic sense. Like most men of his type he had gulped his knowledge standing, as he had snatched his food from lunch-counters. The wonder of it lay in his extraordinary power of assimilation. It was the strangest influence of a mind to which erudition had given force and fluency without culture. His learning had not educated his perceptions. It was an implement serving to slash others rather than to polish himself. I have said that at first sight he was immense, but as I studied him he began to lessen under my scrutiny. His depth was a false perspective painted on a wall. It was there that my difficulty lay. I had prepared too big a canvas for him. Intellectually his scope was considerable, but it was like the digital reach of a mediocre pianist—it didn't make him a great musician. And morally he wasn't bad enough his corruption wasn't sufficiently imaginative to be interesting. It was not so much a means to an end as a kind of virtuosity practised for its own sake, like a highly developed skill in cannoning billiard-balls. After all, the point of view is what gives distinction to either vice or virtue. A morality with ground-glass windows is no duller than a narrow cynicism. His daughter's presence—she always came with him—gave unintentional emphasis to these conclusions. For where she was richest— he was naked. She had a deep-rooted delicacy that drew color and perfume from the very center of her being. His sentiments, good or bad, were as detachable as his cuffs. Thus her nearness, planned, as I guessed, with the tender intention of displaying, elucidating him, of making him accessible in detail to my dazzled perceptions, this pious design in fact defeated itself. She made him appear at his best— but she cheapened that best by her proximity for the man was vulgar to the core vulgar in spite of his force and magnitude thin hollow spectacular a laugh and plaster bogey. did she suspect it i think not then he was rapt in her impervious faith the papers oh their charges were set down to political rivalry and the only people she saw were his hangers-on or the fashionable set who had taken him up for their amusement. Besides, she would never have found him out in that way. At a direct accusation, her resentment would have flamed up and smothered her judgment. If the truth came to her, it would come through knowing intimately someone—different. Through—how shall I put it—an imperceptible shifting of her centre of gravity. My besetting fear was that I couldn't count on her obtuseness. She wasn't what is called clever. She left that to him but she was exquisitely good. And now and then she had intuitive felicities that frightened me. Do I make you see her? We fellows can explain better with a brush. I don't know how to mix my words or lay them on. She wasn't clever, but her heart thought. That's all I can say. If she'd been stupid it would have been easy enough. I could have painted him as he was. Could have. I did brushed the face in one day from memory. It was the very man. I painted it out before she came. I couldn't bear to have her see it. I had the feeling that I held her faith in my hands, carrying it like a brittle object through a jostling mob. A hair's breadth swerve, and it was in splinters. When she wasn't there I tried to reason myself out of these subtleties. My business was to paint Vard as he was. If his daughter didn't mind his looks, why should I? The opportunity was magnificent. I knew that by the way his face had leapt out of the canvas at my first touch. It would have been a big thing. Before every sitting I swore to myself I'd do it. Then she came, and sat near him, and I—didn't. I knew that before long she'd notice I was shirking the face. Vard himself took little interest in the portrait. But she watched me closely. And one day when the sitting was over she stayed behind and asked me when I meant to begin what she called— the likeness. I guessed from her tone that the embarrassment was all on my side, or that if she felt any it was at having to touch a vulnerable point in my pride. Thus far the only doubt that troubled her was a distrust of my ability. Well, I put her off with any rot you please, told her she must trust me, must let me wait for the inspiration, that some day the face would come. I should see it suddenly, feel it under my brush. The poor child believed me. You can make a woman believe almost anything she doesn't quite understand. She was abashed at her philistinism, and begged me not to tell her father. He would make such fun of her. After that, well, the sittings went on. Not many, of course. Vard was too busy to give me much time. Still, I could have done him ten times over. Never had I found my formula with such ease, such assurance. There were no hesitations, no obstructions. The face was there, waiting for me. At times it almost shaped itself on the canvas. Unfortunately Miss Vard was there, too. All this time the papers were busy with the viaduct scandal. The outcry was getting louder. You remember the circumstances? One of Vard's associates—Bardwell, wasn't it?—threatened disclosures. The rival machine got hold of him, the independents took him to their bosom, and the press shrieked for an investigation. It was not the first storm Vard had weathered, and his face wore just the right shade of cool vigilance. He wasn't the man to fall into the mistake of appearing too easy. His demeanour would have been superb, if it had been inspired by a sense of his own strength. But it struck me rather as based on contempt for his antagonists. Success is an inverted telescope through which one's enemies are apt to look too small and too remote. As for Miss Vard, her serenity was undiminished, but I half detected a defiance in her unruffled sweetness, and during the last sittings I had the factitious vivacity of a hostess who hears her best china crashing. One day it did crash. The headlines of the morning papers shouted the catastrophe at me. The monster forced to disgorge. Warrant out against Vard. Bardwell the boss's boomerang. You know the kind of thing. When I had read the papers, I threw them down and went out— As it happened, Vard was to have given me a sitting that morning, but there would have been a certain irony in waiting for him. I wished I had finished the picture. I wished I'd never thought of painting it. I wanted to shake off the whole business, to put it out of my mind, if I could. I had the feeling—I don't know if I can describe it—that there was a kind of disloyalty to the poor girl in my even acknowledging to myself that I knew what all the papers were howling from the housetops. I had walked for an hour when it suddenly occurred to me that Miss Vard might, after all, come to the studio at the appointed hour. Why should she? I could conceive of no reason, but the mere thought of what, if she did come, my absence would imply to her, sent me bolting back to Twelfth Street. It was a presentiment, if you like, for she was there. As she rose to meet me a newspaper slipped from her hand. I'd been fool enough when I went out to leave the damned things lying all over the place. I muttered some apology for being late, and she said, reassuringly, "'But my father's not here yet.' "'Your father? I could have kicked myself for the way I bungled it. He went out very early this morning, and left word that he would meet me here at the usual hour.' She faced me, with an eye full of bright courage across the newspaper lying between us. "'He ought to be here in a moment now. He's always so punctual. But my watch is a little fast, I think.' She held it out to me almost gaily, and I was just pretending to compare it with mine, when there was a smart rap on the door and Vard stalked in. There was always a civic majesty in his gait, an air of having just stepped off his pedestal, and of dissembling an oration in his umbrella. And that day he surpassed himself. Miss Vard had turned pale at the knock, but the mere sight of him replenished her veins, and if she now avoided my eye, it was in mere pity for my discomfiture. I was in fact the only one of the three who didn't instantly play up, but such virtuosity was inspiring, and by the time Vard had thrown off his coat and dropped into a senatorial pose I was ready to pitch into my work. I swore I'd do his face then and there, do it as she saw it. She sat close to him, and I had only to glance at her while I painted. Vard himself was masterly. His talk rattled through my hesitations and embarrassments like a brisk northwester sweeping the dry leaves from its path. Even his daughter showed the sudden brilliance of a lamp from which the shade has been removed. We were all surprisingly vivid. It felt somehow as though we were being photographed by flashlight. It was the best sitting we'd ever had, but unfortunately it didn't last more than ten minutes. It was Vard's secretary who interrupted us, a slinking chap called Cornley, who burst in, as white as sweetbread, with the face of a depositor who hears his bank has stopped payment. Miss Vard started up as he entered, but caught herself together and dropped back into her chair. Vard, who had taken out a cigarette, held the tip tranquilly to his fusee. "'You're here, thank God!' Cornley cried. "'There's no time to be lost, Mr. Vard. I've got a carriage waiting round the corner in 13th Street.' Vard looked at the tip of his cigarette. "'A carriage in 13th Street?' My good fellow, my own brougham, is at the door." "'I know, I know, but they're there too, sir—or they will be inside of a minute. For God's sake, Mr. Vard, don't trifle. There's a way out by 13th Street, I tell you." "'Bardwell's Myrmidons, eh?' said Vard. Help me on with my overcoat, Cornley, will you?" Cornley's teeth chattered. "'Mr. Vard, your best friends—Miss Vard, won't you speak to your father?' He turned to me haggardly. "'We can get out by the back way.' I nodded. Vard stood towering. In some infernal way he seemed literally to rise to the situation, one hand in the bosom of his coat, in the attitude of patriotism in bronze. I glanced at his daughter. She hung on him with a drowning look. Suddenly she straightened herself. There was something of Vard in the way she faced her fears, a kind of primitive calm we drawing-room folk don't have. She stepped to him and laid her hand on his arm The pause hadn't lasted ten seconds. "'Father,' she said. Vard threw back his head and swept the studio with a sovereign eye. "'The back way, Mr. Vard, the back way!' Cornley whimpered. "'For God's sake, sir, don't lose a minute!' Vard transfixed his abject henchman. "'I have never yet taken the back way,' he enunciated, and with a gesture matching the words, he turned to me and bowed. I regret the disturbance." And he walked to the door. His daughter was at his side—alert, transfigured. "'Stay here, my dear.' "'Never!' They measured each other an instant. Then he drew her arm in his. She flung back one look at me—a paean of victory—and they passed out with Cornley at their heels. "'I wish I'd finished the face, then. I believe I could have caught something of the look she had tried to make me see in him.' "'Unluckily I was too excited to work that day or the next, and within the week the whole business came out. If the indictment wasn't a put-up job—and on that I believe there were two opinions—all that followed was. You remember the farcical trial, the packed jury, the compliant judge, the triumphant acquittal? It's a spectacle that always carries conviction to the voter. Vard was never more popular than after his exoneration. I didn't see Miss Vard for weeks. It was she who came to me at length, came to the studio alone, one afternoon at dusk. She had—what shall I say?—a veiled manner, as though she had dropped a fine gauze between us. I waited for her to speak. She glanced about the room, admiring a hawthorn vase I had picked up at auction. Then after a pause she said, "'You haven't finished the picture?' "'Not quite,' I said. She asked to see it, and I wheeled out the easel and threw the drapery back. "'Oh,' she murmured, "'you haven't gone on with the face.' I shook my head. She looked down on her clasped hands and up at the picture, not once at me. "'You—you're going to finish it?' "'Of course,' I cried, throwing the revived purpose into my voice. "'By God, I would finish it!' The merest tinge of relief stole over her face— "'faint as the first thin chirp before daylight. "'Is it so very difficult?' she asked tentatively. "'Not insuperably, I hope.' She sat silent, her eyes on the picture. At length, with an effort, she brought out, "'Shall you want more sittings?' For a second I blundered between two conflicting conjectures. Then the truth came to me with a leap, and I cried out, "'No, no more sittings.' she looked up at me then for the first time. Looked too soon, poor child. For in the spreading light of reassurance that made her eyes like a rainy dawn, I saw with terrible distinctness the rout of her disbanded hopes. I knew that she knew. I finished the picture and sent it home within a week. I tried to make it—what you see? Too late, you say? Yes, for her. But not for me or for the public if she could be made to feel for a day longer, for an hour even, that her miserable secret was a secret, why she'd made it seem worthwhile to me to chuck my own ambitions for that. Lillo rose, and taking down the sketch stood looking at it in silence. After a while I ventured, "'And Miss Vard?' He opened the portfolio and put the sketch back, tying the strings with deliberation. Then, turning to relight his cigar at the lamp, he said, She died last year. Thank God. End of Section 8 End of The Greater Inclination by Edith Wharton